Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Hello, everybody. My name is Nate, if we haven't met, and whether you're joining online or you're listening to this later in the week or these amazing people in the room, I am so thrilled that we get to be together. We are studying a book in the New Testament. It's an epistle, which means letter. So this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy. And Timothy is someone he's been working with for well over a decade And he leaves Timothy behind in a city where Paul had come and planted a church. And he leaves Timothy behind to help this new fledgling group of Jesus followers grow forward. And it's a huge challenge for Timothy. So Paul writes him two letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And he is walking through what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in a city like Ephesus, which is a large city, probably the third biggest in the Roman Empire at the time. And it is a prosperous city, it's multicultural, and it is a deeply religious city. One of the things that just overshadows the whole book is that in Ephesus, there is one of the seven original wonders of the world. It's the temple to the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And This city has been worshiping Diana. She's been at the hub. They take a month every year to celebrate her. And so how do you help a group of people who have been a part of a traditional religion that their parents and their grandparents and their great-great-grandparents were a part of and move them forward in this new concept that Jesus is actually God and that he came to save. And they have a whole different system of ethics that they've grown up with. And Paul is helping Timothy navigate through all that. So here's where we come to this week. In chapter three, Paul is going to talk about leadership, leadership in the church. Now, here's what I hope for some of us, if you're, you've been a church person, maybe you've been around for a while, you know that this matters. Uh, I could tell you a story from my own early years growing up where there was a leadership failure in the church and how devastating that can be. It's disheartening, it's disillusioning. You have expectations for people who are in positions of leadership. And when they don't meet that, it's the confusion that sets in when there's inconsistency in people's lives. So boy, I'll tell you, I just, we cover this passage in super humbly, right? I'm just really, really humbled as I read this. If maybe you're spiritually unresolved or you're newer in your journey with Jesus, I think this is going to create some interesting things to think about because we have values when it comes to leadership and the Bible has like a whole different set of values. And so I, I think it's good for us to consider and think through, well, what type of leaders do I wanna work for? What type of people do I wanna work with? What type of people do I wanna hire? What, what type of people should hold offices? Because we have some cultural values. Let me give you an example of that. A rather new phenomenon in North America would be what's called moral relativism, 
which basically means this. You hear people say it all the time. Well, hey, you do what's good for you, and I do what's good for me. So the basic thought behind it is there aren't necessarily moral absolutes. There's things that work for me and things that work for you. But I want you to just think about the last five years in particular where people who are in positions of power and leadership operate in a morally relativistic way. And what happens? <laughs> they get in huge trouble and they lose their jobs and they get fired. And there's this inconsistency within our culture where we say, well, everybody has to decide what's right for them. But when somebody does that, here's what happens. Other people get hurt. Somebody gets stepped on. Somebody is mistreated. And we cry a foul and go, well, that's not okay. So what is okay? What should our expectations be? Now, before we read this, here's an interesting thought. There are a whole bunch of ways that churches create structure of leadership. So I'll just give you a few of the main ones. There's a congregational type of leadership. And so a lot of churches are congregationally led, which means it's really democratic. So everybody kind of votes and um, I've been to a church like this. My dad pastored a church like this. So every two years he was voted on whether or not he would be the pastor of the church. And even if you got like 85% of the vote, every week you're like, what's the 15% that want me gone, right? <laughs> so that's one form of leadership. Uh, one would be more Episcopalian where there's a, a group of like bishop type individuals who oversee every local church. There would be elder driven or board driven churches where a board comes together and a board kind of decides even what the pastor does, what he's going to teach on. And then there are pastor driven churches. And there's been tons of debate about this. And this is part of why we have so many different denominations in the world. This is why we have first church of such and such and then three blocks away, second church of such and such. In large part, sometimes it's theological, but in large part it's over like, how do we lead our churches? And here's the bad news. Jesus nor Paul left us a clear document on how a church is supposed to be led. It would be really nice if there was some sort of diagram. Okay, here's how churches are to operate and here's what's supposed to happen. What we do have, is we have several different type of leaders that the Bible mentions. And then we have this passage and one in Titus, which doesn't talk about church structure and leadership, but it talks about the type of people you're looking for. This is the type of person that you want to look for when it comes to leadership. And so here's what I wanna do. We're gonna walk through this passage. It's, it's fairly long and it's, it's fairly broad. And Paul's gonna introduce each one of these traits with the word must. So he's saying these aren't negotiables. He says, here's what we need to have. When we value, so as followers of Jesus, it could be really different than general culture. As followers of Jesus, here's the things that we really, really value when it comes to leadership and character. Okay, let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 16. Here's a trustworthy saying. So we don't know what this saying was, but it must have been circulating in the New Testament church. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, I love that he starts with that because as we continue to make our way through the list, he's saying, listen, I know these expectations are really challenging, but I also want you to know this is a noble task. Okay, so don't, don't, don't be afraid of it. As he goes on, 
Now, the overseer, we'll talk about that word in a moment, is to be above reproach. Basically means this, the, 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 the original language is there's nothing that somebody can grab a hold of and say, this is true about your life and it's not okay, it could pull you down. Faithful to his wife. All right, so this is, uh, here's where this gets a little bit interesting. I, I've been to a couple of places on planet earth where there is a new expression of the life of Jesus and those are cultures where polygamy is acceptable. And there's like, you think like this makes sense. It means faithfulness, that the object of one's desire and affections and time is on that person that they're married to. In a polygamous culture, this is literally, I sat in a session as we were working through, everybody in the village was a polygamist. They have more than one spouse. And you're like, okay, so what do we do? Do you like pick one and get rid of the other? Do you, like it can be a little bit more complicated than you see, but this is about faithfulness. Temperate, meaning just balance, not given to emotional extremes, self-controlled. Meaning I don't have, I don't have outbursts that could hurt or offend someone. Respectable, meaning this person, like if, if you just asked, not everybody's gonna go like, oh, that is the greatest person in the world. But you know, hey, I went to middle school with them and they were kind of a piece of work, but I respect them. I respect them. Hospitable. Isn't that an interesting one to put on there? So Paul's saying this, when you look for leaders, you wanna find people whose lives and homes are open to others. Jesus was just incredibly relational. He kept inviting people into his life. Now, this is a little bit of a challenge. I am, people don't believe me when I say this, but I am an introvert and I'm married to an extrovert who is awesome at hospitality. Um, you know what I do on Mondays after the weekend passes? I sit in my office with the lights off and study and interact with no one. I love being with people, but how I recharge is by being alone and just kind of rebuilding. But Paul says this, when you're looking for people who would lead in a church, you want people whose lives are just open to others. Like they, they'll, they'll allow themselves to be known and they'll know others. Able to teach, we'll talk more about this, but this is the only skill in this entire list able to teach. And notice it doesn't even say able to teach well. It just says that someone has the capacity to be able to communicate and to pass on the message and the story. This is the only one. Here's one of the problems that we have is this one skill can be very attractive in a church setting. So you could find somebody who is phenomenal at teaching, but who might lack all of these other traits and what happens? when they teach, it's phenomenal, right? Like, wow, that inspired me, that educated me. But if these other aspects, that one skill is there, but if the other character traits aren't there, you're just gonna have an implosion eventually. So able to teach, not given to drunkenness. The word literally means that you do not stand side by side next to alcohol. So it's not a dependency upon, it's not, there's no addictive cycles happening in their life. So not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. You do not want leaders who are domineering and hostile, not quarrelsome. Um, and to be quarrelsome, it could be theological, 
right? Like, I don't like how you believe. Let's, let's have it out, right? So not wanting to pick fights, but trying to find peace like Jesus did. Not a lover of money. This is a huge one. And I would say culturally, this is something that the church has to struggle with just because of, oh, I think the advent of TV and um, there are, I think it's possible to be involved in ministry and be really gifted and money is a high motivator. I think what Paul is saying is you have to do what you do, not for a paycheck. You want to find leaders who influence you and it's not because they love money and they want more money that that's like not a primary motivator at all. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. So I love that Paul says this, here's what you don't wanna have. You do not wanna have a leader who is dynamic in front of the church, but at home it's chaos. That like he can't, he can't or she can't manage their home well and so the, the kids are resistant. Paul, Paul does this. I love this. He, he was unmarried when he writes this, but he realizes that being a follower of Jesus starts at home. If, I, if you find a leader who is like great with everybody else, but in their home life, it's just a mess. Paul says, that's not what you want because that shows inconsistency in their life. They can perform in front of people, but what you really want is you want someone whose kids and whose spouse go, yeah, 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 my dad's not perfect, but I'll tell you what, I love him. Now, I will also tell you this. I, along with every pastor I've ever met, has almost resigned over this verse when they had teenagers. Because they're just, you know, like raising kids and like his children must obey him. And there's been more than one time where I'm like, oh, it's over, right? It's just over. So what do we do? I love it. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, you have to determine whether or not a child is rebelling because of their parent or in spite of their parent. And it, it's just true. I've met amazing parents who have a kid that just kind of spins sideways for a while. And then I've, I've met kids who have grown up in horribly dysfunctional homes, but they, they just have it together and they make good choices. Now, here's what I take great, great confidence in. In Hebrew culture, when a boy turned 13, he was considered a man and he was responsible for his own morality. <laughs> and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect, that his family respects him. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Great question. Begins at home. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. I want to talk about that for a moment. So <laughs> anybody who's been around church for a while, we have this weird thing that when a celebrity publicly says they're now a follower of Jesus, we're like, yeah. That's awesome, right? It feels like it kind of legitimizes us. And then the, like the church tends to put them into a place of position. Or think of this, you have like a, a woman, you have a man who's just dynamic in the business world, respected by everybody, and they become a follower of Jesus. Paul says, here's what you don't want to do. Because they were really fantastic in another realm. You don't want to put them in a position of leadership in the church. And Paul actually uses this term about uh, this comparison to the devil, that there's arrogance that can 
reach up in them and they can then be conceited. So like everybody take your time, he says. Just because somebody's dynamic, don't put them into a position of leadership. We want to look at their character. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. I, I love this, that Paul says, when you're thinking about church leadership, you want to think about not just the people in the church, but you want to think about how are they viewed in the community? Are they seen as a good business person? Are they seen as somebody who's respectable and honest as well so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap? In the same way, deacons. So Paul mentioned first the overseers. Here's the second one is deacons. Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a, with a clear conscience. So we'll talk more about deacons, but they kind of hold on to the message and they make sure that, that churches don't get just divergent in different ways. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So whether it's men, whether it's women, when you're looking for these people, here are the traits. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I want to pause here for a moment. So Paul, again, is not in Ephesus, but he's telling Timothy, as, as this church moves forward, you have options, you have options that look more like a democracy. You have options that look more like a traditional cultural values of power. He says, this is what you need to remember. The church is different. The church is God's household. And so we have to be very thoughtful about what we value in human beings, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul says, if we don't get this right, this, this thing that Jesus left behind called the church, if it values the wrong things, if it puts the wrong people in places of leadership, it jeopardizes what Jesus is trying to do. Beyond all question, and now here's a, Paul, Paul adds three theological poems to the book of 1 Timothy. Here's one of those. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Beautiful summation of who Jesus is and what he did. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go back to that first phrase where Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying, uh, those who desire to be an overseer desire a noble task. Because you, you read the list and you're like, who wants to go under that type of scrutiny, right? Well, here's what Paul wants us to know. He doesn't say everybody's supposed to be in leadership. But he says for, for people who desire that, desire, they desire something noble. Like that, that's a good thing. So here's a challenge that we have. I, just want, I want to be really frank. Over the past couple of decades... I think the church has done something very important and yet it's had an unintended consequence. So 
you'll hear this even f- from, from the language I use, is we're trying to emphasize what the Bible calls the priesthood of all believers. Okay, so there are times when throughout church history, all the emphasis has been placed on those leading the church. Like it's their job to do ministry. Ephesians 4 gives me my job description. It is very clear to me. It is, I am to prepare God's people for acts of service. So my job is not to do ministry. The job of our staff is not to do ministry. Our job is to prepare the ministers, okay? I'm looking at the camera. I'm looking in the room to prepare the ministers to do the things that Jesus would do. So that's why we dismiss our service everywhere, every, every week. Go and be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. Is I'm constantly working to de-emphasize the importance of my role and emphasize the importance of your role. That it is us collectively. You are the ministers, right? Here's an unattended consequence. So I, I live by that. I breathe by that. I will emphasize that. We have probably underemphasized at times the importance to have people who say, I think I'm called to leadership within the church. So in the United States of America right now, the average age of pastors in churches is 58 years old. And I know that might, to some of you who are 58, you're like, oh, that's not bad. <laughs> some of you are 51, you're like, not that far away. But, but here's what people are predicting. They're predicting churches are gonna have a enormous crisis in leadership in a few years. That we do not have enough people stepping up and saying, you know what? Being in ministry is a noble task. And even though there's a long list and it means my life is gonna be scrutinized, I feel called and I'm going to do that. So I, like, I've gotta tell you, as we look at the future and we look at what Jesus wants to do, there are nations that need missionaries. There are nations that need people to say, you know what? I think I'm supposed to give up my own personal dreams and do that. There are churches, there are so many churches right now that do not have pastors, even post COVID. It was just brutal on a lot of churches in a lot of parts of the country and pastors are resigning at a rate we've never seen before. And here's the challenge. We don't have leaders to put into those churches. So they're like merging churches and doing all kinds of things. I would just say this, if God has called you, if you're an early retiree, if you're a, if you're a 13 year old, it, whoever you are, if God has called you into ministry, he's called everybody to be a priest, right? Everybody to carry the message. But there are some people he puts aside and he says, okay, I gotta keep a really close eye on you. So you're gonna be in full-time ministry. If that's you, that's a noble task. And it is our responsibility to do everything that we possibly can to prepare you. And it could be terrifying because you're stepping away from a certain security. Maybe you're stepping away from a a certain standard of living and you're saying, but I feel called to do this. That's a noble thing. Trust God with it. Let us know. We'll prepare you. I I have a map in my office, which is right up here with pins in it. And it's just... It's just Montana, Wyoming, and um, North Dakota. And there are 67 pins where I think we need a new church in that city. And you know the only thing holding us back? The people. It's the people. So God's going to speak to some of us. 
And you may want to, you'll hear the enemy like disqualify you. Like, no, 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 not you. Like, what about your, man, come forward. Let's see if we can train you. Let's see if we can prepare you because that's a noble task. There's my little plug for ministry, right? Okay, here we go. What is the second thing? Second thing is this. I want to talk about different leadership roles in the New Testament because we have two listed here overseer and deacon, but there are many others and it can create a lot of confusion. I'm just quickly going to go through the primary forms of leadership that we read about in the New Testament. Number one is the word apostle, which literally means a sent one, one who goes out. So here's the confusion around apostles. Jesus chooses 12 people and he calls them disciples, and then sometimes he calls them apostles. Later, the church uses the term apostle to describe them. And notice this, it's always spelled with a capital A. So the question would be, are there still apostles today? Here would be my answer. Yes, but not capital A apostles, small a apostles. And that's people who just, they have the courage, the tenacity, the faith to go and start new things in new places. That would be a traditional understanding of what an apostle is. I've known a few people like this. I know a guy in Sri Lanka, which is a, they're just like, we're no believers there. He shows up and after a period of time, 2% of that nation has begun to follow Jesus. He just was, he was like a go-getter starter. That happens. So apostle, next one would be prophets. So the gift of prophecy, meaning that God can animate anybody's voice, that's very important. There's also an office of prophets. You'll find the places where it's listed. You've got um, people like Philip's daughters. You've got a guy named Agabus. And they're not people who are fortune tellers, but they're people who have this unique ability to speak into the life of the church. This is what God is saying at this moment. This is the truth that we need. Next is evangelists. So again, I think everybody's supposed to be an evangelist, but there are, there's like an office of evangelist. This is mentioned in, in Acts, different places. Philip would be a great example of this. So just to help you understand this, I would say, um, I'd just say two words, Billy Graham. And here's what I love about Billy Graham. You could say Billy Graham to someone who hasn't been to church in 40 years and they'd know who that was. Why? Because he just had the office of an evangelist. He had the capacity to speak to millions. It doesn't mean that you and I don't carry that as well, but that was an office. The next is pastor. Now here's the irony about pastor. It's found one time in the New Testament, but it's the term we use all the time around here. And it's always linked to this idea of a shepherd and sheep. Okay, so it's this, this person who's supposed to be involved in nurturing, caring for, protecting, and uh, moving the sheep into the next place. Next, we have teachers. So somebody can have the gift of teaching. You might be teaching in public school. You might be doing some sort of instruction. That's really important. But then there are people who have this like office, right? And they're, they're there to help teach doctrine and help shape the truth of the church. And then elder, this is the most common one used. It's used 30 times. It had nothing to do with your age necessarily. And it is borrowed from the Jewish synagogues in the first century. So this is familiar to Paul because the person who oversaw a synagogue. So in Judaism, just remember this, you have one main place of worship, which is in Jerusalem. And a good Jewish person is gonna travel there at least once, ideally three times a year but you could have lived hundreds of miles away 
And so the little expressions of the temple in Jerusalem were synagogues. And so it was just somebody who oversaw the local collection of Jewish people in that specific city. And that is adopted, this whole word elder, into New Testament language. Overseer slash bishop, episcopos, literally means somebody who watches over. We just read about overseer. Sometimes it's translated bishop, and that's probably been morphed a bit in church history where, you know, a bishop wears a big hat and, you know, carries a staff and all of that. It literally, it just means somebody who watches over. It's the same word as the word overseer. And then a deacon. We just read about that. Deacon, it's, it's linked to the word servant. This is something that Jesus emphasized so much. And it looks like deacons manage the business affairs and the daily activities of the church. Deacons are over watching your kids right now. Um, deacons open doors. Deacons are going to clean up after everybody leaves. Deacons are going to meet together to examine the church budget and make sure everything is coming together. Deacons. And then if you, if you just want to explore this more, Acts chapter 15 kind of shows this all coming together. The, I don't think the church was ever supposed to have extreme hierarchy which is a natural human tendency, right? But you do see in Acts 15 that there's people in charge. And then there's one that some people add, um, it's the term saints. And in many liturgical movements, uh, somebody can become a saint, you know, if they've performed a miracle, uh, these really unique circumstances. I don't find any New Testament backing for that whatsoever, but you just want to know that's church tradition. Okay, so those are the different offices. Um, we talked a little bit. I'm going to skip over point number three, Paul's statements. And I just want to move into my fourth thing here, which would be, here's what Paul is getting at. Because how do you apply this to your daily life, right? Character over capability. I think if there's one thing that Paul wants to communicate to Timothy, he wants to have happen in the city of Ephesus, is that your character is way more important than your capability and who I am matters far more than what I can do. I want you to think about leadership values if we were not talking about the church. If you're talking about the place where you work, when you're looking for a new Manager, CEO, what do we look for? Capability, profitability. We look for somebody who can bring structural alignment. And I'll tell you what, the list would be almost entirely skill-based. And in Paul's list, it is almost entirely character-based with one skill, able to teach. How many books... Have you read? How many tests have you taken? Like I've read them all too, you know, strength finder. And I've been told what you need to do is like figure out your strengths and then do your strengths really well and not worry about your weaknesses. And then I've read other books that say you need to worry about your weaknesses because your strengths come naturally. And we, we just divide it up and we have Myers-Briggs tests and Enneagrams and it goes on and on. And we're trying to figure out like how to be the best we, us we can be. Here's what Paul says. Like, I don't think, none of that's bad. He's just saying, here's what I want you to remember. Who you are, deep inside, matters way more than what you can do. 
think about this in terms of even parenting. Parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, if you're a teacher. I, I, sometimes I got pulled into this. Like I have four kids who are all really good athletes and I don't know, over the period of time, you, you look at them and I start thinking about, man, this kid could play college football. And other people are saying, and so you, like I'm investing and we're investing so much into their athletic ability. And there were just times where I had to stop and pause and realize this, my job as a parent wasn't to create a college scholarship level athlete. My job as a parent is to create character in this person's life so that when the sport was over, the person remained. The person with character, with, with kindness and hospitality in their life. Even as we develop this thing called discipleship where we come around each other and we're, we're trying to move forward in Jesus in, in small groups, the goal isn't that you have more and more biblical knowledge. That's beautiful. But the goal is that all these things, when we came to Jesus, that are broken and dysfunctional and, and just ugly, that they begin to find healing and my character develops and I become trustworthy and I care more about what's happening at home than what's happening on a stage that my priorities are changed. That's our goal for people. And Paul's saying, when it comes to leadership, man, you could, you could value church expansion and you could value all these things. But if you don't have character, you're gonna build a house of cards that can fall down with just one bad decision. And even in our own lives, I would just challenge you to contemplate this a little bit. Who are you gonna work for? Who are you gonna hire? Is what they do most important or who they are most important? I struggle with this verse every time. We live in a democracy. First Timothy was not written to people that live in a democracy. But when it comes to voting, I look at this and like, okay, there's policies which I like. And then there's just the character, which matters more, the policies or the character. I mean, these are, these are really good questions. But what Paul is saying is within the Jesus community, we don't value what's typically valued. And Paul doesn't say this directly, but here's something I've noticed. Skills can be taught to a person who has character. But I don't know if I can teach character to someone with a lot of skills. Character, it's not my responsibility. I can teach skills. You can teach skills. You could hire somebody who didn't know anything, but you thought that person, man, they have character. I'll teach them how to do the job but have you ever been successful at teaching somebody character? It takes a long time. And I think it's not just up to me. It's up to the work of the spirit of God in someone's life. That's part of the beauty of when you surrender your life to Jesus, there's something of the life of Jesus. The spirit enters my life and he begins in partnership with me as I surrender. He begins to heal and reorganize and create new values in my life. And Paul's looking at Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, this infantile church that you have in Ephesus, if you're just looking for people who can get the job done and do it really well, 
You've missed the boat. Look for people who are open, who are like quick to repent. Look to people who are saying, listen, I can't do that because my family's most important right now. Look for people who are deeply honest, whose lives are open, where you don't see inconsistency or hypocrisy because that's how you build a healthy Jesus community. I'd just like to take a moment and um, I wanna pray over this. I'm passionate about this right now. I am passionate. Here's what I don't want you to do though. Please don't think, hey, those are great verses for somebody like you, Nate. No, 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 these are for us because they're speaking of an entirely different value system. And here's what I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray that God would take you and he would, rather than give you more skills, he'll work on your character because here's what I know without a doubt. We need people in education who are filled with character. We need people who are involved in government offices who value character. We need missionaries because there are nations that are pleading and we don't want the most skilled or extroverted. What we want is the person with the deepest character. We need pastors. It would go on and on. We need business leaders who are, you know what? I get the skill thing, that's important. But the most important thing in my life is that I am a person of character. That comes above profitability. And as God raises up people with this new set of values, here's what happens, the world changes. Nonprofits are led in a way that isn't scandalous. They're led by people of character. And they they make an impact. They do the work of Jesus here on planet Earth. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.